The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the show, we'll talk about the Los Angeles neighborhood of Boyle Heights. Today, it's known as the heartland of Chicano culture. Historian George Sanchez will explain how it also became a bastion of progressive democracy. His new book is titled Boyle Heights. But first, utopia. It's been a term of abuse in politics for a long time now. It's synonymous with irrational and impossible. Instead, we are told we should focus on how politics can improve things with voting by mail, Medicare for all, and a green infrastructure bill. But The Nation is publishing a special issue in defense of utopia. For that, we turn to Jeet here. He's a national affairs correspondent for The Nation and author of the book In Love With Art. It's about Francois Mouly and Art Spiegelman. We reached him today at home in Regina, Saskatchewan. Jeet here, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Well, utopian means doomed to failure, doesn't it? Well, I mean, that's an interesting sort of question because there is a kind of tradition, uh, both um, on the right, naturally, but also on the left, uh, using utopian as a term of abuse. Margaret Thatcher's famous uh, statement, there is no alternative, is the, the, the great anti-utopian slogan. But, you know, Marx and Engels also used utopian as a term of abuse for a type of socialist that they thought was like simply interested in making uh, plans and had no real means to achieve those plans and thought that like simply willing a better world was sufficient. So, so you want to think that there's this united front of left and right against utopia and in favor of realism. But the fact is that utopia is coterminous with modernity itself, that at the very beginning of, you know, what we consider the modern age, Thomas More wrote this uh, book that coined uh, the phrase utopia and was also a trip to an imaginary land that had solved many problems, but was also like a really savage critique of the nature of European society at the time, of like the sort of warmongering, the enclosure of the lands that was destroying the peasantry. And so one sees it more, and in subsequent writers, the fact that utopia has always been a necessary component of social critique and also of social activism, that uh, and, utopia is what gives us dreams. And didn't Marx himself propose a utopia after the revolution, after capitalism? We'd have a world without class conflict, without exploitation, where workers would control production, and the rule would be 
from each according to his abilities, to each according to his needs. That's from the critique of the GOTA program, 1875. That's a utopia. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. know. Marx had a kind of utopian component to his thinking. And in some ways, if you want any sort of change, you have to have some sort of utopian ideal. And I think there's been a considerable body of analysis, uh, going back to the German uh, thinker Ernst Bloch, who's kind of working in the uh, Marxist tradition, but in contemporary America, Frederick Jameson, that has really emphasized the necessity of utopian thinking um, and also what happens when you don't have utopia. Uh, Jameson has this great statement that it's easier for us to now imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yeah, let's talk about that. Dystopia is everywhere. People don't have a problem imagining the worst possible society, even if they don't try to imagine the best possible society. Why is dystopia so ubiquitous today? Well, I mean, I, I think it's hard to separate out the popularity of dystopia from the kind of, you know, limitations of the imagination that were a byproduct of, you know, the rise of neoliberalism in the 70s and 80s. And so once you have, can't imagine a better world, unless you're, you know, Francis Fukuyama, most of us don't accept that history has come to an end, right? Yeah, so, right. so there's like three paths. Things get better, things remain the same, and things get worse. And if you foreclose saying things aren't going to get better, and there's a few people like Francis Fukuyama who say, well, this is actually the best of all possible worlds. Things will remain the same. But most people intuitively know that that's not the way, you know, the world works. And they can easily imagine, like, things getting worse. And, of course, we do actually have many pressing things that happen that are happening that are dystopian. I mean, obviously, climate change is dystopian. Obviously, the pandemic that we're still living through is dystopian. And that becomes the dominant mode of thinking about the future, not how will we improve the future, but how will we survive the future? And it's everywhere. I mean, like going back the last two decades, one season, everything in like, you know, the popularity of Handmaid's Tale, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, but also like you go to any, if you have a teenager, children, um, you know, you go to any bookstore and you look at what's on the shelf for YA fiction and it's all, you know, dystopias. It's like, this is what we're offering our children, an imagination of disaster. And we were just based on the, the reality that it's a grim world. In your piece that opens the Utopia's special issue of the nation, you quote the famous Marxist sociologist Emmanuel Wallerstein, who wrote in 1998 against Utopia. He wrote, Utopias are breeders of illusions and therefore inevitably of disillusion. And he adds, Utopias can be used and have been used as justifications for terrible wrongs. The last thing we need is more utopian visions, close quote, Emmanuel Wallerstein. What do you think of that? Yeah, I want to give him some credit in the fact that obviously one can think of examples, you know, from history. The, the, the name Stalin, I think, is a, is a useful <laughs> for, thing to bear in mind of, of, of utopian arguments being used for ill. But I mean, it's also, you know, dystopian arguments are also used for ill. Actually, historically, utopian thinking has been the seedbed for a lot of progress. And one sees this. Uh, in American history, going back to the sort of remarkable period of the 1820s and 1830s, uh, where that is almost totally forgotten in history books, but the ideas of, you know, Charles Foyer, uh, this French utopian thinker took off, and there were many people in the United States who started to build these sort of communes. What sprang up in these communes, even though they failed, 
was that these were communities where people tried to build up ideals of gender equality, of you know, men and women working and sharing equally, of racial equality. They were real seedbeds of abolitionist thought. And um, really the sort of birthplace of a lot of the sort of social egalitarianism that you know has really enormously benefited America and has in fact changed the world. Some listeners might know this movie Metropolitan by Whit Stillman. It's a sudden sort of um, uh, New York high society and there's one character who calls himself a foyerist and uh, uh, he's challenged by uh, someone else and says, Foyer, uh, wasn't that Brooks Farm? Didn't that fail? And he says, <laughs> well, you could say it failed, but like everything fails in the end. The, the question is, what did you what did it achieve? And so I would actually maintain that the utopians of the 1830s achieved something. And one can see it again in the 1880s, 1890s, where there's a huge upsurge of utopian thinking and writing, perhaps most lastingly in the book, Looking Backwards by Edward Bellamy. And that was tied to the sort of progressive and populist movement, which again had real achievements. So I, I would say utopian, you know, counter Wallerstein has had actually very positive, utopian thinking has had positive achievements. Critics often say that utopian thinking is a sign of the defeat of the left. It arises in periods of defeat when our efforts to make progress have not succeeded. We console ourselves with dreams of a perfect future. You're suggesting that's actually not the way it's worked historically. Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think that that's like actually accurate. People like Frederick Jameson and Perry Anderson, who I cite in my piece, cite the examples of where utopian literature has flourished. And um, it's often, as I said, uh, been the sort of springboard. A more recent example is the really uh, rich flourishing of gender utopianism of the 1960s and 70s. One can see is in the 70s a start of a sort of political and economic defeat to neoliberalism. But on issues of gender, I don't think that there has been necessarily so much of a defeat. And in fact, many of the sort of thinking of, of that period, which was seen in the fictions of people like Ursula K. Le Guin or Joanna yeah. Ross or Samuel R. Delaney, it was really transformative and you know, has brought us to you know, the world of today of where you know, gender fluidity is much more recognized than accepted. And there's a much sort of you know, richer thinking of the diversity of gender roles. So, yeah, I, I, I just categorically reject the idea that this is just wish fulfillment or thinking. It's actually how people exercise their imagination to get to the place of political activism. And let's emphasize here uh, that the opposite of utopia is not rational policy making. It's ideological closure. It's, as you quote Margaret Thatcher saying, there is no alternative. It's where we're trapped forever in the present structures of inequality and injustice and exploitation and able only to make, you know, small improvements in the minimum wage or something like that. That's right. That's, no, that's exactly right. One could say that there is a kind of anti-utopianism of the left, of the Marx and Engels sort, which is like, you know, emphasizes the necessity of praxis or thinking about uh, historical process or historical situation. And that's like very important. But, you know, like you have to have the two things. Um, Oscar Wilde once said, you know, like a map without utopia would hardly be worth having. And I, I like that idea of like a map. Like I think people need a mental map of like where they're going in the world, where they want to end up. To that end, like, yeah, I feel like utopian aspirations are essential. Like I don't, I don't see how one could uh, live without them. And it's not, not just Charles Fourier and 
Frederick Jameson, and let's mention Herbert Marcuse, who assert the need for the utopian imagination. Let's not forget, imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Uh, that's something that all young kids in America learn to sing, at, at, and they're quite happy with it. No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And, you know, to think back at the, the moment of the 60s, of the sort of energy that was there, um, the giddiness, the, the sort of willingness to let the imagination run wild, I, I think that, I mean, on a, just on a very basic human level, like, I feel that these are, like, actually essential parts of what it is to be human. People need to have a sense of play in their in their life. I mean, one sees this in ch children. Like, can you imagine a child that doesn't play? Like, <laughs> what would that, that be like? The In some ways, I mean, the utopian component is both a dis uh, freeing up of that will to playfulness and also trying to take us to the world where playfulness uh, is much more expansive a part of our lives. So how are we doing right now uh, with the utopian imagination? Well, actually, I, I'm, the nation issue, I think, is a very telling because I actually think that people are more open to like really radical ideas, even coming from like not necessarily very radical sources than they have before. One sees it in um, like just like the figure of Andrew Yang, you know, who obviously failed both in the presidential run and as mayor of New York, but who did excite a lot of attention. And it was basically all based on this idea of, you know, universal basic income, which in, you know, the form that Yang was offering was even like very minimal, but like, it seemed very interesting that, you know, one could get uh, attention and some political traction based on an idea that would actually fundamentally change the nature of uh, work. And I think that one sees a lot of uh, utopian thinking on like in the economic realm where for the first time in a long time, like you have this opening for things like, you know, modern monetary theory of trying to reconceptualize the nature of economics and what can be moved. And even things like, you know, the Green New Deal. I mean, there's the kind of minimalist form that sort of Pelosi and I, Biden seem to be pushing. But like, you know, like, one sees, like, among the people who are, like, advocating for it, things like, you know, revived Tennessee Valley Authority, right? Like a really large-scale social enterprise and uh, uh, spending. And again, in some ways, uh, what, the point that you made about dystopia and utopia has to be borne in mind that the future is open and the future is not going to be the same. I mean, we just saw this over the last, through the pandemic. The future is not going to be just what we're used to. And if we don't you know, imagine if you think about ways to make it better, the forces of change are going to come from a dark place. And I think we saw this in the pandemic because it created an opening for like, you know, sort of big pharma and for research of a kind of nationalism. And I think that's going to happen with things like climate, that if one doesn't have positive Green New Deal, it's not going to be, well, okay, then things are just going to remain the same. It's going to have climate change and then we'll have large corporations doing geoengineering or something, you know, truly dark and uh, dystopian. So I think that's worth bearing in mind as well, that like um, we have to be prepared for a world where things are going to change very radically. And unless there's like blueprints for the best way to develop that world, we're likely to get the worst way. Some of my favorite examples of the utopian imagination today are the discussions on climate change, not just federal subsidies for solar and wind power generation, but an end to fossil fuels not just asylum for refugees, but a world without borders. And these are things which we now talk about in the nation. 
That's right. I don't know exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, if we're going to have like large scale migrations, then a sort of borderless world has to be part of the agenda. Whatever new technologies are developing, like, you know, as with the vaccine, they have to be like shared quickly. And one sees in the failure of the vaccine, the way in which not having a utopian vision just locks in the status quo and actually makes things worse. It just says with the vaccine, like what the left is pressing for and should continue to press for is that getting rid of property intellectual property rights and sharing the vaccine widely as we develop new technologies we can't like leave it to the uh, profit mongers they actually have to be spread far and wide and shared far and wide so in some ways the the crisis that we're facing that is now ongoing is pressing us towards utopian solutions Jeet here he has the lead piece in the nation's new special issue on utopia you can read the whole thing at thenation.com Thank you, Jeet. This was great. Okay, thank you. Yeah, really good to be here. Now it's time to talk about how a Los Angeles neighborhood, Boyle Heights, became a bastion of progressive democracy. For that, we turn to George Sanchez. He's author of the award-winning book, Becoming Mexican-American, and he teaches American studies and ethnicity and history at USC. He's also the president of the Organization of American Historians. His new book is titled Boyle Heights. We reached him today in LA. George Sanchez, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, John. Well, Boyle Heights, for those who don't know, is the Chicano and Mexican-American neighborhood in Los Angeles. It's just five minutes east of City Hall across the L.A. River. Today, it's known as the heartland of Chicano culture. Historically, would you call Boyle Heights a ghetto or a barrio? Well, I I guess I would call it uh, a little bit of that and uh, also a kind of multiracial neighborhood. So it's always been a working class neighborhood. It's always been a place for people who worked in the nearby factories uh, and industry. But it, but it, uh, I don't think the people in Boyle Heights would call themselves living in a in a ghetto or a barrio. I think they would describe Boyle Heights as very multiracial, very very American. Therefore, from their perspective, and it wasn't really until after 1960 that it became majority Latino. So. Boyle Heights has tended to separate itself off a little bit from the rest of East Los Angeles, thinking of itself as with this unique history of activism across racial groups. So I think, though, many people would see it as a barrio, and it certainly has had you know, a working class background. It, it, it's certainly much more than that. You show how lots of immigrant groups started out there in the 20th century. First, East European Jews and Italians, Japanese immigrants, even white Southerners. How come they all picked Boyle Heights? Um, Well, first of all, a lot of the rest of Los Angeles uh, was often not available to them. Um, There was racially restrictive covenants in the early part of the 20th century. That included not only restrictions against African-Americans, Latinos, Asian-Americans, but also many white ethnics that would otherwise have moved other places. Um, Uh, But also, it was fundamentally close to the growing industry of Los Angeles along the L.A. River uh, in the industrial section to the south uh, near the city of Vernon. So it was a place that one could afford and could be close to various places of employment. And I think that's why Boyle Heights became such a, a place to land when you first arrived in Los Angeles. 
You open your book on the eve of World War II with a story about two high school girls, Molly Wilson and Sandy Saito. Uh, tell us what you found out about them and about that letter Sandy Saito sent to Molly Wilson, June 1st, 1942. So let me tell you first about how we got the letter. Um, we, uh, we were doing, uh, and this was when I was working with the Japanese American National Museum to do a, an exhibition on Boyle Heights. And an elderly African-American woman, uh, turned out to be Molly Wilson, came in with two uh, bags, uh, you know, grocery bags full of letters and said, you know, I think I want to give these to you. Um, and it turned out these were letters, uh, return mail from letters she had sent to her Japanese-American friends while, while she was in high school. And they would send back these letters to her. Uh, all through the time that they were in internment camp. So basically around four years or so. Um, and she had kept them in her closet for 50 years. Wow. Um, and so she walked in and she, you know, we were kind of amazed uh, about this. And it and Molly had, uh, as they were heading into high school um, in 1942, um, it, you know, this was the time in which Japanese Americans were interned uh, by President Roosevelt um, Molly was very upset. She was a 14-year-old, very upset about, about this, taking away her, her best friends, essentially, as she entered high school. And so her own personal form of protest was to write a letter to each of her closest friends every week throughout the war. She just said, as long as they're away, I'm going to keep writing. And she did. She kept it up all through high school. Um, and it turns out that it tells you a lot of stories, because when we interviewed uh, her and her friends, um, her friends were the ones that told us the story about them, that group in junior high school, in which uh, they had stood up for Molly because when Molly, Molly was very popular and when she uh, was going to run for student body president of Hollenbeck Junior High School, um, the principal called her aside and said, Molly, we don't think it's a good idea for you to be to be a student body president of this school. She didn't really understand why. And then she figured it out that it was because she was black. And the friends were so outraged that they all decided none of them would run for student body offices. They were all ready to, to do, you know. And so it was that backing up of her that led Molly to feel very uh, wounded when, when uh, Japanese Americans were interned. Roosevelt High School would end up losing one third of its student body, mm -hmm. um, its student body president, its uh, editor of the school newspaper uh, when, when entering World War II. And that letter, that letter of June 1st, which you reproduce in your book, has a drawing as part of it. Tell us about the drawing. So um, the first place that Japanese Americans who were coming from Boyle Heights were interned was the Santa Anita racetrack. And they were kept in basically stalls that had been set up for horses. And so this letter was writing to Molly, if you want to visit, this is what you would encounter. And, and Sandy uh, drew, uh, you know, the fence where Molly would stand, armed guards, and then where, where her friends could stand. And it turns out that Molly wasn't alone, uh, along with a lot of other Boyle Heights residents who were not Japanese Americans, to go and visit those Japanese Americans at Santa Anita. It was close enough that people could get there. And that was the summer of 42 before they were sent off to more permanent uh, internment camps. So it, it, a pretty powerful statement from a 14-year-old you know, perspective. Amazing. Uh, let's talk about a couple of specific uh, historical moments, starting with Jewish Boyle Heights, a history that is being recovered these days. 
Um, Jewish Boro Heights is very important. Jews were probably the, the largest group in Boro Heights uh, from in the 20s, the 30s, um, and really uh, up to World War II. Um, they uh, came from Eastern European backgrounds uh, primarily, but they had often already spent time somewhere in the East, uh, New York or Chicago or, or Philadelphia, somewhere. And so Los Angeles was a secondary area of migration. These were working class Jews. They tended to be people who were affiliated with uh, a number of labor unions in uh, the city of Los Angeles. Um, so a lot of union activity sort of centered in Boyle Heights. Uh, garment workers, hatters, carpenters unions all set up shop in Boyle Heights. Um, they also were heavily uh, Yiddish speaking. The history of Yiddish, uh, the Yiddish background in Boyle Heights is really critical to understand what was going on. And uh, at that point, people were investing in Yiddish uh, as a way of sort of combating uh, what they saw was happening in Europe in the 1930s. And so there was a lot of uh, newspapers, there was uh, uh, poetry circles, there, were, there was uh, folk uh, uh, schools for, for kids. Um, so the Yiddish life in Boyle Heights was actually fairly uh, substantial. Uh, the Jews, however, also lived among other people. So one of the things I think is really critical is to understand that the story sometimes it's told today as if Jews used to live there and then they left and other people moved in like Mexicans and so forth. When in reality, Jews were living in a multiracial community. And so... Um, there's just uh, all this interesting interaction that occurs um, really from the beginning of the 20th century all through uh, World War II um, that speaks to the fact that that Boyle Heights was absolutely a multiracial place. Um, it doesn't mean that there wasn't discrimination in Boyle Heights, different kinds of backgrounds, but it does mean that that um, uh, the, the community formations were happening uh, with an acknowledgement of how mixed Boyle Heights was. One of the biggest political events in the history of Boyle Heights of the last century that you recount came in spring 1968. It's very surprising, uh, not the organized civil rights movement, not the labor movement, but high school students walking out in protest against conditions in their schools. Talk, let's talk about the high school walkouts of 1968. Sure. Um, I was able to interview uh, several participants um, and particularly focused on women who seemed to be under understudied uh, in that lead up to, to the 68 walkouts. Um, one of the things that happened uh, in the 50s and 60s is the, the makeup of high schools in Boyle Heights actually changed dramatically from being overwhelmingly Jewish and Japanese to a much more Mexican-oriented um, uh, student body. However, there was still a lot of uh, real basic uh, uh, differences between the education that they got. The Mexicans were often put in home economics or in uh, auto shop, not in college prep courses. And the college prep curriculums that each of the schools had were often still very white and very very Asian American. So, so that differential drove a lot of Mexican American students to really wonder what was going on in their schools. Why wasn't there more Mexican American teachers? Uh, why weren't they being encouraged to college? And so beginning in the early 60s, um, Mexican American students went to Camp Hess Kramer uh, in the Santa Monica Mountains where they they 
uh, partnered with uh, older students, with some teachers. Sal Castro was among them and, and really learned about, um, you know, what was happening much you know, beyond their own community in Boyle Heights. They realized the differentials between schools on the west side and the east side that they were on. Um, and they began to organize themselves at a local level uh, to enact some kind of protest. Um, they also learned from what was what was going on in Los Angeles. They learned from, from the Watts riots. They learned from um, other examples of protests, uh, Cesar Chavez, the UFW, um, and they decided they needed to do something uh, very uh, 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 public. And so they were aiming, with the help of Sal Castro and some older college students, to actually uh, walk out at the very end of uh, the 1968 uh, spring semester. Uh, but in fact, what happened was because of a, uh, uh, a, a tension over a theater, Barefoot in the Park, uh, being canceled at uh, one of the schools, uh, they all walk, walked out early in March. And uh, so basically five high schools on the east side of Los Angeles all walked out within the first few days. And it was the biggest urban protest that sort of launched the, the uh, Chicano movement in Los Angeles. Um, again, I think that these high school students have to be recognized as high school students who in the spring of 68, of course, were going through tremendous upheaval in their lives while, you know, uh, Martin Luther King uh, was assassinated. Robert Kennedy was assassinated. They met with Robert Kennedy uh, 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 just, just weeks before his assassination. Um, and they were also trying to graduate. These tended to be uh, fairly, uh, you know, student body uh, officers, uh, people who were, were very active. Uh, for them, it was a learning experience um, that uh, really affected them for the rest of their lives. And uh, so many of them went on to incredible careers as teachers, as artists, as uh, other, you know, filmmakers, um, that that group is actually a very important group in kind of the history of Chicano Los Angeles. By 1970, Boyle Heights was over 90% Latino. Of course, that was divided between recent immigrants, many of whom were undocumented and people who had been born or spent decades living there. And this is also the era that's known as the rise of gangs. Boyle Heights became the kind of the gang capital of America by the mid 80s. Let's talk about the place of gangs in this history. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that happens in Boyle Heights is that the uh, many of the, the lower middle class, you might say, had moved out of Boyle Heights, not just Jewish and Japanese Americans, but also Mexican Americans. They had moved to the east, Pico Rivera, uh, other places like that. And so you end up having impoverishment, but you also have these public housing units, which, which came from the 40s and had been really uh, not very well kept. And so for very working class people, this was a, and, and very poor people, this was a place to land in Boyle Heights. Um, Aliso Village uh, in the Flats area was a was a huge place, but so was Ramona Gardens, the other the other public housing units. So you had uh, some of these undocumented folks who landed there um, with at a time in which, particularly in the 1980s, social services were being pulled out of places like Boyle Heights. There wasn't uh, summer jobs for young people, a whole bunch of things. So that led to a proliferation of gangs. And so you've had these interesting responses from people who I think knew Boyle Heights history 
Um, the, the most obvious one being Homeboy Industries uh, and Father Gregory Boyle using the Catholic parish of Dolores Mission to really have an alternative approach to dealing with gangs. He realized that many of these young gang members were coming out of mixed status legal families. <clears throat> they were either undocumented themselves, the young people, or they were children of undocumented with very little uh, opportunities to sort of rise up in the 80s and 90s. And he started Homeboy Industries as a way to replace gang involvement with jobs and uh, raised money essentially to, to make sure that jobs were available to these folks and really saw in them um, the possibility of different kinds of futures. And so Homeboy Industries, which has become one of the largest gang intervention networks um, really in the entire country, started in a Boyle Heights context in Aliso Village in the Flats area, um, and, and very much is attached to, to the fate of uh, these uh, undocumented families that, that uh, began to really be a, a very large minority, if not the majority, of Boyle Heights. Today, Boyle Heights is fighting gentrification. Will it be able to remain a place where low-income Latinos can raise their families? I think that depends. I think it depends on uh, both changing city and state policy uh, so that more low-income housing is available uh, across the board in Los Angeles and Southern California. But it also depends on, uh, I think, a focus on what I, what I find to be the most interesting part of gentrification in Boyle Heights. Most people will point to gentrification and look at simply at race as an indicator of gentrification, certainly in many other communities, Echo Park and so forth, that's what you've seen is a transformation of race. Um, so far in Boyle Heights, it hasn't led to a transformation of Latinos, but it's led to uh, more middle-class Latinos or college-educated Latinos returning to Boyle Heights, even if they grew up there, they're now coming back there, they're buying homes, there's more professionals in the neighborhood. So the question is, can low-income housing remain a priority in Boyle Heights? Um, and uh, can Boyle Heights remain a place that newcomers can feel that they can come in and, and it's a welcoming place for them? I think that's really the, the key. It's not so much a racial issue right now as it is um, really the, the, the class differences that have to be uh, maintained and, and nurtured um, in terms of, of housing for everyone. The story of a neighborhood that was strong because of its diversity and that continues to be a bastion of grassroots progressive democracy in Los Angeles. Boyle Heights is the new book by George Sanchez. George, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vanden Heuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.